0: Do you think it was a chance encounter he pulled up behind you that day? Or do you think he knew this is a little girl who didn't have any you know, father who's gonna come out and try to kick my butt for, for finding out what I'm gonna wind up doing her? Any idea about that?
1: It feels like, you know, as an adult now, looking back at how it is, to me, yes. I truly believe like he was smart enough and sophisticated enough to know how I came home, knew, You know, my mother, we had been living there since 1987, so I was nine when I moved there. So there was this two-year period where people talk or people get to know each other. You know, I just didn't know that he was a trafficker.
2: Hello, everyone, my name is Ray Carr. I'm a former criminal profile coordinator with the Philadelphia FBI. uh, And I was responsible for profiling dozens of serial crimes over my career and capturing the Friday night bank robber after 30 years on the run.
0: Hey, James R. Fitzgerald here, Fitz for short. I'm a former Ben Salem police detective sergeant at suburban Philly, joined the FBI in 1987, went to New York City for seven years, transferred to Quantico as a supervisory special agent and a criminal profiler, later a forensic linguist, helped catch the Unabomber, DC sniper, and a few other cases uh, over the years and welcome back to another episode of cold red
2: i'm ray carr and with me always is fitz jim how are you
0: i'm fine ray how
2: are you great jim jim we have a special guest today with an incredible story uh sarah has a unique background um in the fact that she's a survivor of childhood abuse and sex trafficking she has a story that some may find disturbing but also very empowering her story is a journey from abuse to incarceration, uh, for killing her abuser, to finally gaining her liberation. So in starting this, I just want to say, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to have you with us today. Oh,
1: thank and you. Know well, here, of
2: course, Sarah. Yeah. And I think yeah, probably nice. for the best way, best way for us to get started with this, Sarah, is uh for you just to have the floor and just... uh Tell us about your upbringing and, and don't just, you're just having a conversation with me and Jim, nobody else is here. Uh, From the time you were a teenager to the time, uh, time of your incarceration and on from there.
1: So I'm going to go back to when I was living in Monrovia, because that's when the onset of abuse was happening that I didn't really know that it was abuse because it was just the, the, the family dynamics. And my sister raised me most of the time. My mom was very much like either at work or she wasn't able to be uh, available a lot of times. And when she was, it was, you know, we just kind of blended with whatever. It was go with the flow. I felt like I I was an overall happy kid, you know? um, I had a lot of resilience to kind of like bounce back from things that were difficult. Um, we experienced in Monrovia, we experienced, uh, the night stalker coming to our house. Uh he had harassed the neighbor and, um, had caused, um, some violence off the street. So he was, he would come and, you know, stalk the alleyways. I didn't, again, I was a kid, so I was under the age of nine and I didn't have anything to really compare that kind of drama or violence too. It was just okay, you know, the police came in, they lifted fingerprints. Um the violence at the house was constant. It was uh yeah, it was constant. You know, I know that yeah, no go ahead.
0: Just for a timestamp and a and a, a it's just so this we're talking about the mid nineteen eighties. Yes. And Monrovia's in California, of course.
1: Yes. Uh, I forget what
0: big city is that near, I forget. Pasadena okay yeah so you you're living there and um of all experiences besides everything else we're gonna hear about the night stalker is uh is uh encroaching in your particular neighborhood wow. we all know that he was a killer, a rapist yes. and uh and what have you, so you're living through that as a young young girl, so
1: yeah, our family mm-hmm. my it was my mom, my sister, and myself, and we lived in a duplex and so we were in the back duplex and in the front duplex was Juanita and her three girls. And so, you know, he was able to track and see who was vulnerable and come through the alleys. So you, I would just hear the adults talking about it or the news, but I didn't like consciously stress over it, you know? Yeah. Well, you were talking,
2: You were talking, Sarah, about a lot of abuse and a lot of family dynamics and violence. Mm-hmm. Not just going on in the in the neighborhood because of the Night Stalker, but going right, happening right within your own home. Can you expand a little bit about that?
1: Yes. Yeah, so the abuse, um, excuse me, I was the youngest in the house. And my sister was like eight and a half years older than me. And she was really frustrated, you know, because she didn't really have much of her youth growing up. And so my mom would come down hard on both of us. And so something like as the trauma violence is like having my hair combed um, stuff like that would escalate into some serious um, abuse, frustration, so either from my mom or from my sister. And so I would spend a lot of time outside. I wouldn't come in the house. I'd stay out until like 10 or 11 o'clock at night or hang out in the neighbor's backyard and make like sand pies or whatever. And, um, yeah, I mean, I just, I just kind of did what I did and that was it. I'd go to school. I got good grades at school. School was right across the street and I drew, you know, it was difficult, but yeah.
0: And Sarah, to to capture your whole family picture, if I read this correctly, Mm -hmm. your father, you only had a few times that you met with him. Mm-hmm. three times from what I read and he was basically in prison most of your early life. Yes. So you didn't really have too much of a father role, so to speak, at least not by him, correct?
1: Uh, yes. And my mom had a lot of boyfriends, so it was whoever was over or, you know, in a relationship with her at the time. Um, A couple of them were young. One guy was wanted for murder back East and I guess, came to California with my mom and he had hit, when we had moved, my mom had found that he had hidden knives like in the couch, in the chair, I guess like he was planning something. I don't know, but my mom and him ended up breaking up. So nothing came of it, which is, you know, of course good, but I would hear the adults just kind of talk about everything, you know, everything. I I heard everything and I was adultified A lot when I was a a, a young person, you know, and I don't know what kind of abuse I endured because I don't have a memory of it when I, you know, little, but I do know that I was very, um, like I would, I had this one little outfit where I would take the buttons off and show my shoulder, you know, I was, I was over like sexualized and I have some memories of of certain things that happened i feel subconsciously so there's a lot more things that happened, you know in that home just because there wasn't a lot of oversight and i was very uh curious about a lot of things you know and yeah
0: so the abuse and any abuse that may have happened we hear a lot about stranger danger, but statistically, it's more likely what happened with you, someone within the household, an older male family member, or in this case, boyfriends, uh, SIGOTs, uh, significant others of your mother. And if anything did happen, that's probably where it stemmed from, right?
1: Yes. And then there was a situation that I experienced with my sister. And then my sister has shared that our oldest brother had sexually abused her when she was younger. So there was a lot of sexual stuff going on amongst, like, cousins, Um, my oldest brother and my mom's youngest sister. You know, there was a time I remember I went to my grandma's house, and my cousin, you know, did something. I was like, no, what are you doing? You know, it was just really, you know, then we didn't sit down and talk about it. It was just, don't do that or knock it off or go play or, you know, that kind of stuff. So, again, I didn't have anything to compare it to. So everything that I experienced, I normalized it.
2: That's one way to deal with it. Yeah. Is make, yeah. It, make it seem as though it's normal. Sure. Sure. So yeah. the, the, uh, the individual that you ran into when you were around 11 years of age, and I'm not going to mention his name unless you want to. Uh, I, I don't see the
0: need in mentioning his name i think his initials are gg correct yes maybe just for reference point go by that that's fine
2: so how did you come about meeting this person gg
1: i was on my way coming home from school and his car uh pulled up behind me and he basically just talked to me and made me feel safe enough to get in his car to go get some ice cream and my home was Caddy corner, so I could see my house and I got in the car to go get ice cream.
0: You were about 11? Yes. And he was about 20?
1: He was 33.
0: Oh, well, I missed that one. Uh, so 20 years older. Okay, geez. So
2: you got ice cream. Did anything else happen at that point? If you If you wanna talk about
1: that. He took me to thrifties, I got ice cream. He went to a park. I sat on a park bench and watched him play basketball for a little bit. And then he took me to his house. One of the houses I later found out was his. And he made the area real, you know, comfortable and cozy. And then he went into a room, he changed. He came back out and he told me like, stand up. And I did, I was very compliant. And he went to like sexualize my body. Like he was touching my my energy like, around me, but not really touching my body. And I just stood there. And he just kept like seducing me and things like that. And then um, he, looked, he took my little jumper off and uh, my underwear. And then he just, he molested me. Um, and he he really enjoyed it. I just was like, okay, you know. And then he took me home after I got dressed and he, he took me home and he dropped me off at my mom's house and he gave me a card. And on the back of the card, it was a limousine service. And there was like five different numbers and he said, if you need anything or, you know, just want anything or just need to talk, you know, I'm here for you. And it was, it was, it wasn't, it felt like he cared. Um, so, you know, I just was like, okay. And I went into the house and that was it. I went into my room and that was it.
2: Was your, Further contact with this guy, Gigi. What was that? Was there further contact oh. that you had with this guy, Gigi?
1: Absolutely. And, and yeah. who
2: initiated the contact?
1: It was back and forth. It was back and forth. He. So I haven't sent you guys the pictures or anything, but I have them to show that where he, him, and another guy had came and they basically built this house up down the street. And if you look outside of his yard, you can see my house directly. So it was like a T, right? So, and it was more like organized crime in the community because one of his limousine drivers was my neighbor across the street. And so he would come over and visit with my mom, but he also worked for Gigi. Um, So it it was organized because it was like certain people went out to get certain girls or even like gang rape the girls, you know? And some of this if it is like, it's not like I got hard facts, but if you look at the people who did what, who was closest to who and you know what I mean? That kind of situation. Mm-hmm. So that was also things that I experienced in part of the, Breaking, breaking me in period, I believe, was when I was gang raped in the middle of the day, and I was 13. But that whole neighborhood, it was gangs, it was drugs, and it was very violent rubido, and it doesn't, it hasn't even changed much. Like, that same culture consists, it still goes on there, you know.
0: So, Sarah, do you think, did Gigi know about you beforehand? I mean, here's you as an 11 year old, you don't have a father figure in the house. And here comes this guy who arguably could be of father age to you, especially when you reminded me he was 33, 20 years older than you. Um, Do you think maybe he knew even a little bit in advance? Hey, here's an 11 year old. I can, you know, groom her for a few years. And then start putting her to work. And we know where this is going with the human trafficking. But do you think it was a chance encounter he pulled up behind you that day? Or do you think he knew this is a little girl who didn't have any you know, father who's going to come out and try to kick my butt for, for finding out what I'm going to wind up doing her? Any idea about that?
1: It feels like, you know, as an adult now, looking back at how it is, to me, yes. I truly believe, like, he was smart enough and sophisticated enough to... Know how I came home, knew you know, my mother. We had been living there since nineteen eighty seven. So I was nine when I moved there. So there was this two year period where people talk or people get to know each other, you know. I just didn't know that he was a trafficker. I didn't I didn't know what a trafficking was.
0: Sure. A lot of people today don't, and we're slowly getting the word out what's happening. But one more question about this this first encounter, when he dropped you off or was driving you home, did he swear you to secrecy? This is our little secret between us. Don't tell anybody. I mean, promising you more things in the future. Because obviously if you told someone and the police found out, he's under arrest right then and there. Was there any kind of a bond that was established then in that regard?
1: It was so he to like I felt like he felt so calm confident in what he was accomplishing with me that he didn't feel nervous or worried interesting he wasn't threatened by anything and when he this is what you know any child that goes through this when my body had reacted to him touching me the way he responded like oh I can make so much money off of this and in my head I didn't, I didn't, I didn't process that, right? Like I was just like, I was stuck, you know, and it, it, it just, I just kind of went inside myself at that point, but I didn't, um, I think that because I was living in such survival mode in my home anyway, I lived in the moment, like I'm safe in the moment but I didn't have anything to break down that this wasn't safe.
2: Sarah, mm-hmm. in, in that first encounter, did he actually say that? I can mm-hmm. make money. We can make money with this or. Did he yes.
1: Actually- because I because the way my body, it was, it was, it was, I don't want to talk about it too much, but it just, it's sure. like, um, you can tell the perversion from his lived experiences, right? It's like that, pedof- that pedophile, like,
2: Pedophilia.
1: Oh, this is good. Like, you know, and it is is—it's really disgusting that a grown man would have that. Kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. To the point where, you know, I truly believe that people who have the resources um, have worked with people like him to handpick and find kids.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, great.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Well, how does this progress? In other words, you don't have to get into details with this, but how did this yeah. progress? Um, did it progress with you having additional encounters? Now you mentioned a gang rape at thirteen with individuals from the neighborhood, but how did it progress with him? Did he engage you with other things? Did he? How did it? How did it go?
1: It was like. He started to, for my friends, you know, oh, you guys want to go to something or go over here and do this or my school. And he would come and want to have quiet time with me alone or take me to a motel. You know, it was a process, the grooming process to break me in. And the first time that he took me to the hotel, it was the same hotel that, um, He, you know, he lost his life in, and he, he, that hotel was a hotel that he, he visited a lot. And so the records, you know, they didn't, they didn't have the records to show, um, how many times he had been there. That information wasn't brought out at my trial. They said that the cameras weren't working that night. Um, just a lot of interesting things.
2: Convenient, yeah, very convenient. Very convenient,
1: convenient and like I told you, I have the tapes, and um, one of the detectives, you know, and I want somebody else that's got a good ear that can kind of hear how this the conversations were going with the detective Um, when he was interviewing like Big Mama, who was one of Gigi's. Um, high-end women that just kind of took care of stuff for him so the conversation with the detective on the tape is she's like oh well you'll care I'll send it over to you guys but like
2: okay.
1: it goes into detail they have phone records that for two months after the crime happened that phone was still being um, called in the car phone but they didn't bring, they didn't, the judge didn't want any of the, you know, like somebody blocked them from bringing the evidence for the phone numbers to to the phone.
0: Hey, Cold Red fans, Fitz here. Are you interested in a career in criminal justice? You've heard me talk about numerous cases I've worked over the years involving the scientific analysis of language known as forensic linguistics. Well, Pennsylvania Western University now has a fully accredited MA program, which I actually co-develop, where I teach forensic linguistics along with various other excellent professors too. This is the only forensic linguistic graduate program in the world, which is both online and asynchronous. That means the courses are 100% on your schedule. We have professor video recordings, academic readings, and real-life case exercises posted weekly, and you can access any time to review and then complete the week's assignment. If you're interested in learning how written and spoken language can help solve crimes, and get a master's degree at the same time. Check out the Pennsylvania Western University's Forensic Linguistics program at www.penwest.edu/justice.
2: You know, people aren't blind. You know people aren't blind. People in the neighborhood, they know what's going on in the neighborhood, especially in those close, tight-knit neighborhoods. How did people around you not see this happening? And did they see it happening?
1: I, the neighborhood itself is just is dirty. You know, it's not the kind of neighborhood that this is not. It's not It's not really a safe neighborhood. It's just not. It's they just knew who he was. You know, and that's it. And I think that some people, I don't know what level of influence that he had, but it wasn't just on. The neighborhood, and if he had the police on the payroll, not only just in Riverside but Orange County and Los Angeles, it just started to kind of look a little Epsteinish, you know, in comparison to who was being trafficked, who the clients were, the buyers were, um, things like that, and the amount of money that he had he had showed me one time in a safe where it was hundreds you know and it had the little white paper around it and all jewelry and just all these things and i he was like you know this can this this is you this is what you know you deserve you're beautiful you know life is this and he would tell me that it didn't matter um if you're in a relationship with a boyfriend or a fiance or husband, it's still, it's still sex. It's still like selling your body because they're going to buy you flowers. They're going to take you out to eat. And so he would compare the morals to, you know, equivalent to money being bought. Like you're no matter what, if you're in a marriage, you're still being bought.
2: Usually when you see a stack of hundred dollar bills with a, with a strap around it, what you call a white strap. It's usually in sums of ten thousand. Am I right with that, Jim? Usually in sums uh, from what
0: I know. Around number five to ten, something like that. Yeah. yeah.
2: Like ten thousand dollars at a pop. It's a hundred hundred dollar bills. Which is he ten thousand dollars. Nice. And there's it quite a few of those cool. in there.
1: Yeah. You have a say he had a I didn't know but um I guess he they there was like a, a million dollars worth of something also in another safe in the house and the cars. And you got to look at it. That was the mid nineties. So that kind of money equivalents to, you know, now you think about it, it wasn't, it was, it was a higher situation.
2: Did, did you ever before, I know Jim has something want to say, did you ever uh, get any information about who some of the clients may have been. Because I I, I always wonder, you know, after your arrest, if that didn't play a part based upon the clientele. Did did you have a feel for that at all, Sarah?
1: I think now looking back, because especially some of the things that I've experienced since the book came out, um, some of the information that has been shared you know, through investigative journalists. um, The fact, like, one time when Gigi took me to a place, it was a very high-end home. And he said, you just wait in the car. And then the gates opened up for him, right? So he walked through and I couldn't see because it was night, but I couldn't see who he was talking to. But there was, you know, exchange. And then when Gigi got back in the car, he just had this, like, this sense of like, yes, you know, he was excited about whatever was going to maybe happen next. I do feel like there might have been some politicians or judges or, you know, police, <laughs> for sure. Because, like I said, there's too much of he had too much of, of, of confidence. Wow. Um, yeah. And he always. Yeah.
2: I'm picking up that vibe here. Uh, Just just picking up that vibe. I mean, I don't know if I'm right. I don't know if I'm wrong. But I just think there's a lot more to this than even you knew, than even you knew, Sarah.
1: So I think that whoever he serviced, they definitely want to protect him. Just the way that I was treated during my my, um, trial, um how I was harassed by the police department when they had him in the county jail the fact that he had a he had priors in San Francisco in the 80s for pimping and pandering uh things like that but they never brought that evidence into the courtroom and the judge also said that his profession didn't have anything to do with what happened that night and really when when my lawyers came in, Perkins Cooley, when they came in to uh, investigate and, you know, get the records and stuff, they referred to Riverside as a serious elk club. And I didn't know what that meant, but I do now. And that they didn't want to give up any information really about my case. They kept kind of, you know, playing with them. And... When Arnold Schwarzenegger commuted my life without parole to 25 to life, he did it also with Nunez, and Nunez was a politician, right? His son Nunez was in prison, and in Arnold uh, made an executive decision on my case and Nunez's case, and then my rec- the, our records were sealed for 30 years, and I don't know why which was odd because one of my attorneys was like, that was odd, (laughs) you know?
0: Yeah. Sarah, we're getting a little bit ahead here, and I I have a feeling our audience will want to get some more information. And you mentioned your book, by the way, and I want to just mention early on here, I Cried to Dream Again. I I like the title and I, I think it's a compelling title and it'll certainly make people want to read it and find out more about your story. I guess you, you wrote it with Corey Thomas uh, uh, as, as, the, as the co-author there. So we want to hear more about that. But I'm a behavioralist, a profiler, and I, I just want to ask you some questions about those early days. Nothing graphic. I don't want to hear anything graphic or specific, but you're now 13. He's clearly having a sexual relationship with you. This guy, who was in his, I guess, mid thirties at this point, is there at some point was it is he like a boyfriend to you? Is he taking care of you? Uh, I mean, it, the first time he, at some point, he asked you to service one or more other adult males. Did that offend you? Did was it was it like he was asking you to cheat on him? I, I'm just wondering what the mindset of. is of a guy like this who is trying to convince these young women around the world, these girls around the world, how to get them to do what they want without running away. We've established he knew you didn't have a father at home and, you know, your mother was busy doing her thing. You're kind of, and you're in a neighborhood that by your own admission kind of had some crime problems to it. And people probably just wanted to survive in those neighborhoods. They weren't going to call the cops on everything they saw. So how does a guy like this take this to the next level with you? And I'm just wondering, what's he promising you? Is he actually giving you money at some point? And then the first time he says, hey, I got a buddy over here or five buddies. Can you take care of them? How, how does that play on your mindset? Do you want to get out? Does you fight with him? What's your mindset? Mm-hmm.
1: So my mindset was my spirit, I think, no, my spirit was already broken and the abuse that I had endured, like I was already self mutilating by the time I was like nine and 10 hmm. Had of there. I was, I had a lot of melancholy. Like I really knew well how to sit and just understand the depths of grief or loss. However, to the opposite of that, I was really was, like, resilient and I had this childlike approach of trust, you know, it was kind of like, okay, if it has to be this way, then it just has to be this way. Okay. You know, um, it is what it is. And I didn't have a lot of respect uh, for my, my body or my time. And not it, it didn't hold value to me, you know? And I know that is because the different types of sexual abuse I had endured, like, being raped and stuff. So I don't want to talk too much if my daughter comes up. So I want
0: uh, on mm-hmm. one second. Mm-hmm. We can edit this. Sure. Interesting story. Tough story to... Yeah, it really is, Jim. ...hear and listen to and... Uh... Yeah, that's why I say it'd be kind of
2: disturbing. But it's so empowering. I mean, look at her now. She's amazing.
0: I didn't know she had a child. Good for her. Yeah. I think and she's married as
2: I thought that would come in the second part. Yeah. How she kind of had captured things, you know?
0: This would have been a nice part to break, but we can go a little bit more. Maybe you had her walk us through the homicide and yeah, then kind of end it right there. But it doesn't end there with your life, does it, Sarah? Trials coming up. Everyone, stick around for part two. Right. If that makes sense to you. It does. I think it does. Because she's already I- referred to the hotel work. Sure his life ended right? <laughs> sort of euphemistically, which would be good. So how did you first find her again? Through David Garlock. Oh, right.
2: And there's another person too. So David's going to put me in contact with
0: maybe He's one. Pretty good. They have a group one. that they, mm-hmm, they have a group one that per they, season. We can do one of these cases. Yeah,
2: uh, they have a, yeah. uh, a group that they deal with. And uh, I think David might be the keynote at the Next Human Trafficking concert for the university, which is nice. I'd like to get Sarah to do that, too. Bring her to Delaware, have her be a keynote as well. Even have her tell her story at our True Crime Lecture Series. You know? I mean, it's – I want to get into the second part is how she – how how the hell did you survive? You know what I mean, Jim? How do you survive this? Not everybody can survive it. And all our listeners, there's so many out there that may have the same issues, you know, that how, what would you tell them to do? You know, but I, I thought when she was talking, I thought, uh, this is, there's more. And I was reading some of the stuff, the background on her, and I'm thinking, there's something more to this. There's definitely something more to this, you know.
0: I think Wikipedia has the ages wrong. It has her 13 and, uh, and 20, but... No, 11. 11 has oh. her 11. Well, 11 when they first met, yeah. Sarah... Hope everything's okay. Is everything yeah, good? Yeah, I
1: just got to go check in on her in about
0: 10 minutes. How old is she? How old is she, Sarah? She's nine. Nine? Okay. Yeah. Um, Why don't we go, 10 minutes, and then we'll have a logical break. We'll end it. Okay. And then we'll do it. But we can pick up right now, and we have producers listening. We can just pick up where you... Uh, kind of left off in that regard um, so let me just throw out so yeah you were in a difficult neighborhood a high crime area and people there just wanted to survive and what they saw the little girl doing across the street that wasn't you know so much for them to have to react to necessarily but you had to survive and you had to do what you did with this guy including him bringing other people into the mix. And that must have been difficult the first time that happened.
1: It's, I think, yeah, of course it's difficult. My life was already difficult. So this experience to me, it just solidified my low sense of being. It it fed into the over-sexualization of children. Um, My worth began to be defined by, you know, very codependent. It was very codependent it was very like I my identity my identity was like my identity my identity was a reflection of how people perceived me at that moment so rather my mom if she was pleased it was good if um my teachers were pleased you know with my academics then that's good as a gold star if Um, I'm a participant in sexual acts with others. Good job, Sarah. And and so those were how those were the situations that just began to shape my my adolescence. And it didn't help the type of sexual experiences that I was having in the neighborhood. And, And this is very common. In, in a culture where there's gang violence and drugs or, you know, low vibe living, there is this social acceptance, this socially constructed acceptance of like, you can sleep with the homies or sleep with whoever you want. You know, moms were sleeping with their, their kids. You know, uncles were having babies with their, I mean, it just, it was a, it was a, it's a neighborhood where anything pretty much goes and again like it blocked off my sense of um feeling like life was good life was safe life was um, not poverty stricken you know a lot of the buyers You know, it's like they go into the dirtiest parts and they want to do the dirtiest things or they want to be real, just geeky. And to me, that's in an alignment of the different types of spiritual abuses that happen because people who usually harm children You know, their lifestyles are not, they're not good. You usually don't find them in a church where they genuinely want to be in the church, praising God. They're there because they're looking, right, to be that dark dark side of them. And when you, for me, like when I already seen the dark side within my home with my mom, I've seen it with, you know, racism in my family. Uh, and felt it, you know, the fact that I was, my mom was, was French, German, and my dad's American, African, and Native, there was this draw from, like, every, you know, didn't matter the race that wanted to sleep with, with you know, with me or pay. It was that taboo, you know, and like, you think the devil comes looking really bad and dirty, and he doesn't. He comes looking very nice and posh and pulled together and, yeah. like, and then you see the other side of him, you know? And, yeah. yeah,
2: yeah. You know, um, it seems like you were almost numb. You, you, you became conditioned uh, from early on that this is the way life was. You didn't know any other life but but what you were exposed to. But then things came to a boiling point. Can you tell us how it came to where you had to make it, you made a decision or you had to make a decision that was just going to uh, change your life and take it in a direction you never thought it would?
1: Never. Like, I know that the, like, when I didn't feel like he, I needed to kill him, you know? Like, I think I, I I don't know if it was Stockholm Syndrome, that I loved the, anyone who harmed me. You know, I learned that from my mom very well to this day. She can say something to me and I, I cringe like I can feel myself being that little girl. Like, please, my I know I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'll fix it, you know? So I feel like. I feel like the situation that I got put in, that I was set up to take him out. And me, the compliance that I I had and the codependency that I had, I was like more than a willing vessel in a sense. And the level, everything that happened that night didn't make sense, but it did make sense. It was like such cognitive dissonance and that night in the hotel room, I didn't want to sleep with him, you know? Um, I didn't, I didn't even want to kill him. Like it was so much stuff that was going on. And when I did, it happened so fast for me. Like I just jumped up and, and like did it. And when he fell back, I remember like, I just, I started to And I'm like, I told him, I'm so sorry. Like, I'm so sorry, you know? And I think that some people feel like, oh, you deserve a medal, you know, in a sense, because I stopped so many other people from being abused and victimized. Um, I was able to stop the abuse within myself happening, you know, but I also feel like I still have no right to take anybody's life. And I, that never goes away, you know. And I feel like at times I try my best to to make it make sense. You know, I want to check off all the boxes for all the harm that was done. He took my life, you know. He took my innocence. That, you know, he gave my mom money. I don't know what kind of agreement they had. But seeing that being witnessed, you know, it was. A combination of everybody that harmed me represented that night, you know, and I feel that being accountable a hundred percent, I will always be accountable. And I feel like moving forward when we have conversations about real solutions on identifying for survivors, um, that that it needs to be individualized the needs to heal, there's, you know, you don't, there's a lot there, there's so much there when, when especially a kid takes a life of somebody that hurt them, but also showed them another side of like distorted love that only mirrored the distorted love that came in and, you know, you grow up in homes that are dysfunctional. So the cognitive dissonance that gets, you know, penetrated in the subconscious, especially in kids, is terrifying. It's terrifying because the brain opens up, right, at a certain age, until age five, six, maybe seven, and you have a rest of development. But that subconsciousness is like absorbing everything then it closes, and then it opens again. So the kids that are abused, you know, between 11 and the development of the brain where it absorbs everything, it goes to the subconscious, and those are memories that no matter what you do, you're never going to forget. Your body's going to always remember. You got to work extra hard to get that out, but it requires so much, you know, that, the, the cortisol, the adrenaline fatigue, there is just a lot. And I, I feel like now that we're having these conversations, I'm not, I'm not comfortable with just generalizing the experience because it's, it's important to really create spaces where kids feel safe in the community. And it's important to make sure that Buyers and traffickers do not have such easy access to vulnerable kids. Sarah,
2: before you I, go, you're gonna you're gonna stop here.
0: Because yeah, I think this is an ideal uh, place um, to ask Sarah if you would come back for a part
2: two of this. Well, before you do that, can I ask one more question, Jim? That's what editing's for. Go ahead. Yeah, I know, and I, and I'm sure Matt will take care of it, Sarah. While all this is going on from the time you are 11 all the way to the time when when you make the decision to end it, did he ever ask you to engage in any other crimes besides the prostitution aspect of things? Did he ever ask you to do anything else?
1: Well, the child sex trafficking, that's a complete crime, right? Alone. That's right. He wanted me to get a, have a fake ID. Um, to make it these so he was in the process of having me want to be older, right be older than I was. So it was escalating. Whoever the folks were in Vegas, whoever the folks were, you know in different parts of the United States, the, his organizational ring was not just in California. Um, but like Did they not have to travel? school? I mean I mean it's not like a crime not to go to school really. No. But
2: did he engage you to travel? Did he have you travel or was it just in the LA area?
1: No, it was just in California. Yeah, Orange County, LA, yeah.
0: Sarah, mm-hmm. your story is is an amazing one and I know our audience wants to hear more because there's so much more. You're mm-hmm. such an, an intelligent, well-spoken person, especially having what you've been through. Would you consider coming back for a part two of this interview?
1: No, yeah, absolutely.
0: Okay. Um, Ray, are you uh, willing to come back and we'll talk to Sarah again on this? Absolutely, Jim. I'd love to hear the end of this. Folks, we're going to end this particular uh, episode w- of Cold Red with, with Sarah Cruzan, but we're going to come back. So tune into the next one. And um, in the meantime, check out our uh, coldredpodcast.com or social media sites subscribe if you don't mind. And we're going to see you uh, next time and finish up uh, Sarah's amazing story and talk even more about what she's doing today to do everything that she can to uh, to prevent human trafficking, child sex trafficking, what have you, and including some legislation out there that's pending, I know, in the House of Representatives. So thanks, everyone, for listening. Ray, thank you. Sarah, thank you. And see you both uh, very shortly in the next episode. Thanks, Jim.
1: Thank you.